Good evening. We're going to continue on with the series of the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5. As you recall last week, what was heard and what was spoken and what was read to you about was John the Baptist. John the Baptist preached what? What kind of uh, baptism did John the Baptist preach? Repentance, right? I heard water, I heard repentance. He preached on the baptism of repentance. And why was he doing that? He was preparing what? He was preparing the way. The way for who? For Jesus Christ. Praise God. And I'm sure we've all, if some of us have not been baptized, this is what baptism is. Saying goodbye to your old former life, promising Christ you're going to love Him and serve Him all your life, and you're making a proclamation to all the people. So once Christ was baptized, we know He went to the desert. He was tempted by Satan. He was faithful, and He comes back, and He begins His ministry. He begins His ministry in chapter 5, and this is what was read to us earlier. It is called the Sermon on the Mount. We read it. I want to read it one more time. Let's read it together. Chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. Let's come back and see the very beginning, the intro of this sermon. If we look further... If we look down, there's the clicker. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? We're going to recap these questions. This is what you discussed. We're going to move on from here, though. Were your dis discussions good? Were they edifying? Or no? Yes. Did you learn anything? Can somebody share something? This is youth service. We can share with one another, right? Who wants to share? First from the girls. Ladies first. Sisters first. Or no? What about brothers? Okay, brothers. Show by example. Who wants to go? Vlad, do you want to share? Stand up and share something. Speak to everyone. Okay. So let's do, when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you want to uh, not just 
uh, do things, you know, from the Bible, right? You know, not just reading, not just, you know, learning about Christ, but you want to do things for others. Okay. You're, you're, you desire, you know, to do these you know, helpful things. You desire to, to share with others. those around yeah. you, right? Yeah. All right. Yeah. That's the second golden rule, the second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. What about sisters? Who would like to share? Come on, we preachers have to get ready all the time and spend hours to prepare to stand before you and deliver a message. Do you want to share? All right, we have one sister. Let's stand up. Sister, God bless you. All right, let's continue on then. Intro to the Sermon on the Mount. There's a few things I want to mention here that were brought to light. The disciples came to him. He, Jesus Christ, was sitting. Here's a follow-up question. What is Jesus Christ doing right now? Scripture is clear in the book of Acts, in the book of Hebrews. Jesus Christ is actually doing something right now. What is he doing? He's sitting. Where is he sitting? Where? Do you know? In this throne on the, what's this hand? The right hand, so the right side of God the Father. Scripture says he's sitting on the right side of God the Father. He stood up when Stephen was being stoned, when Stephen was going up to glory. All right, so Christ is sitting. The disciples came to him. Here's a question for you. Are you coming to Christ? He hasn't moved. He's still sitting in the same place. Have you come to him yet? Have you come to Christ? Have you met him where he's sitting on his throne? Or no? I want to give you a small illustration. There was a husband and wife. They were driving together. And after 20 years of marriage, the wife's sitting in the passenger seat in the pickup truck, and the husband's sitting in the same spot where he's driving. And the wife looks at the husband and says, Oh, husband, after 20 years, we no longer sit next to one another. There's a spot in between us now. And he looked at her and said, I'm still sitting in the same spot. It's you who has moved. He's still in the driver's seat. Jesus Christ, you know, old trucks have a bench seat, three-seater. Okay, anyways, we're moving forward. <laughs> Sorry. Have you come to Christ yet? He hasn't moved. He's always on his throne. Now, next point I want to bring up. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, when Jesus Christ opens his mouth... What comes out from his mouth? What comes from his lips? Do you know? Let's open up Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11. It says these words. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I 
purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. When Christ spoke, when God, Christ is God, spoke, His words are never in vain. They go out and they accomplished His purpose. They accomplished the very reason why He speaks and they never return empty. His words are still spoken and His words are written and His words are still read. Amen? And Christ continues to speak. He speaks to our hearts by His Spirit. He reminds us and when He speaks to us, it's always through His Word. It's nothing added to it or taken away from it. He speaks by His Word. Alright, so Christ opened His mouth. He spoke, never spoke in vain. The words He spoke, they still sound forth. Here's a question. Do you hear His words? Do you hear the words of Christ? Do you hear the Word of God being spoken to you? Hebrews chapter 4 is very clear. His word is like a double-edged sword. It penetrates through our soul, through our spirit, through our hearts, through our minds. It cuts us into every little millimeter, square millimeter of our body and knows even our intentions and knows everything. Nothing can be hidden from him, from his words, from his mouth. Do you hear them? Are you paying attention to his words? Are you listening when he speaks? And then it says he taught them. Here's a question for you. Is he teaching you? Are you allowing the Spirit of God and God's Word to teach you, to change you? Now, here is an illustration. When we come to Christ, he sits where he sits on his throne. He then opens his mouth. Scripture says he knows us by name. He called us by name. He knew us before we were created. While we were still yet sinners, He died for us. He paid a price for us before we were even born. Sometimes I can't comprehend it. But Christ knows you. He knew your name before you were even born. He knows it. So then He speaks. Are you paying attention? And after He opens His mouth and speaks, His words teach. And He teaches and He teaches, and His Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. The Sermon on the Mount starts off with these words. What a wonderful, wonderful illustration it is for us. So as He began to teach, the people listened, and they listened. So, let's listen. First one is, poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Isaiah 57, I want to share this. Isaiah chapter 57, verses 15. It says these words. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and... Also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Why does God reside with those who are contrite and lowly in spirit? Does anyone know? What about Isaiah chapter 66 verse 2? It says these words. It says, 
All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who was humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Why is it that God dwells with those whose spirit is contrite? Who has a lowly spirit? What does that even mean? It means a repentant heart. It means a heart that is broken. A heart that understands the condition of sinful nature, humanity. The heart that understands that I cannot save myself. It is God who gives salvation. It is not I who am able to rescue myself from any pit of danger, but it is God who gives the rescue. It is God who saves. A contrite, broken spirit is totally opposite of a prideful spirit. A contrite spirit doesn't rely upon themselves. It relies upon God. God is pleased with the lowly and contrite spirit because that person who has that kind of an attitude, that kind of a personality, it's not even a personality, that kind of spirit, God dwells with them. God doesn't dwell with the pride. Let's fill in the blank on this verse. God gives what to the humble? Grace. God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. Why? Why does he oppose the proud? What is a prideful person? What is the spirit of pride? Again, it's totally opposite of the spirit of contrite, of humility. It's a spirit, a spirit of pride believes that they can do all things by themselves. Who was the first to show proud pride? Satan. And for that, he was kicked out of heaven and he fell. That was sin against God. What about Adam and Eve? What was their sin? Yeah, they disobeyed. But Eve was told, if you eat the fruit, you'll become like what? You'll know all things. And what? They began to think, yeah, maybe I am something special. Maybe I am something great. Maybe I want to be God and know all things and possess all knowledge and all the secrets. It's totally opposite of a heart that depends on God. But those who are contrite have a heart of repentance, a heart that relies on God for absolutely all their needs. Here's a question for you. What kind of heart do you have? What kind of spirit do you have? Pride? Or is it contrite? Is it a lowly spirit? Or is it a spirit that thinks, I can do all things by myself, on my own? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Pride will never enter into heaven. A person who thinks, I can do all things, I can rely upon my own strength, a person like that will never enter into heaven. It's only those who rely upon Christ. Let's go next. Mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall... Be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Give me an example of what, it, what it mourn, what type of mourning does Christ give here? Sometimes in our first world, 
right? We live in the first world, in the, right? Not third world country. We live in the first world. We have first world problems. I can't get this. I can't get that. And we give a little sob story. We cry, you know? Because I want that. I want this. I want that. I want this. That's not the mourning. That's not the crying that Christ spoke about. What mourning does he speak about here? If we open up to Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 18 through 20, I believe Jeremiah is a wonderful example of it. If we open up Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 18, it says these words. Your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you. This is your doom, and it is bitter. It has reached your very heart. And Jeremiah says, my anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain all the walls of my heart. My heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Crash follows hard on crash. The whole land is laid waste. Suddenly, my tents are laid waste. My curtains in a moment. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. The prophet who, who mourned, who wept and wept and wept. The book of Lamentations, written by Jeremiah, literally is a book on crying. But what is he crying? What is he saying here? In chapter 4, he begins to speak of the judgments that Judah and Israel are to receive from God. Why? Why are they to receive judgment from God? What did Judah do and what did Israel do that provoke God to unleash His wrath on them? It's one simple word. It's called sin. They sinned. They sinned and they sinned and they sinned and they sinned. And they didn't stop. And so God told them, he told them this, this you brought upon yourself. After he spoke of what's going to happen. And Jeremiah understood exactly what's going to take place. And he said, my heart, my anguish, oh, my anguish. The weeping prophet stood there and he wept. Because he understood the condition of the nation. He understood the condition of the heart that was in his people. And he understood that they are going to be under the wrath of God because of their sin. And so he said, my heart within me hurts. I writhe in pain, my anguish. David Wilkerson spoke a wonderful sermon about this, by the way. I don't know if it's this exact text, but he said, he spoke on anguish. That was his sermon, anguish. So a question to us is, this heart that hurts and cries, mourns. Jeremiah cried on behalf of the people. Here's a question for you. Do you understand? Do I understand? Do we understand the condition of our heart? Before a holy God. Do we understand the condition, the state of our nation? Do we understand the sin that can take place? The sin that grows? The sin that continues to grow? And that fills up God's cup of wrath? And the Bible has given us illustrations of this. And it comes to a point 
where Christ spoke the words, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's talk about a few examples of those who mourn. Moses, how did Moses mourn for his people? When God came and said, Moses, step aside, I will bring out of you a nation out of your own name. Let me destroy all these people, the nation of Israel, because they continue in their disbelief and their lack of faith. Moses fell on his face and wept and said, God, forgive them. What are the Egyptians going to say? And so he wept and he mourned on behalf of the people. Over and over he prayed and he repented on their behalf. What about Jeremiah? He wept. Daniel? Here's a great example of Daniel. Daniel is in captivity in Babylon. He knows exactly why the Israelites, why the Judean, the Jews are there. They're there because of their sin. Because they worshipped other gods. And so Daniel, at one point, if you read the book, you'll find that he prayed and he said, Oh God, forgive the sins of my fathers and my forefathers. You may think, why didn't he just pray for his own sins? But no, you see, a person who mourns, a person who understands the condition of their people, will pray not only for themselves, but on behalf of everyone. On behalf of the people, here's a question for you. Have you prayed for the condition of this country? Have you prayed and asked God, please, grant this nation mercy and forgive us. Forgive this land. Not just me. You forgave me. I know you forgave me. But please forgive those who are ignorant and don't know you. Forgive them. Forgive us of our sins. Jesus told a woman as he was walking to Calvary when he was holding the cross, he saw a woman crying. What did he tell the woman? Do not weep for me, but weep for who? For your children. Weep for your children. Why weep for your children? Because Christ was telling them, and he prophetically said earlier, that there's disaster coming upon these people. There's a disaster coming upon this city. Weep for them. Weep for them. You see, when we have a heart that mourns because we understand what sin is, when we have a heart that mourns and is full of anguish because we understand the state of our nation, the state of our families, the state of our relatives, everything that's taking place, you see, it is only God who is able to comfort Nothing and no one can ever comfort you. Nothing and no one can ever ease your conscience as Christ is able to. He mourned. He wept. He gave an example. So here's a question. Are you mourning? Are you mourning over your own state, your own life, your own heart, your own welfare? Are you mourning on behalf of others? Meek. Blessed are those who are meek, for they shall be or they are, or they will inherit the earth, right? Blessed are the meek. What is meek? Humble. Humble. Patient. You can think calm. It's another example of being humble. Totally opposite of pride. God gives grace to the humble. Why the humble? Because humble person relies upon God. Humility relies upon Him not themselves, versus pride. Moses, according to Numbers 12.3, was the most humble person 
that ever walked the earth. Ever. And Scripture says there will never be anyone like him. God spoke to him face to face. Scripture says this. He was the most humble. Why? I believe he was able to absolutely submit under the authority of God. That's another example or definition of being meek. Able to submit. Here's a question for you. Is the world meek or not? Is the world able to submit? So what made him humble? What makes a person able to be meek? Here's a question for you. How can you know or how are you able to know that you're a meek person? Here's a couple of examples I wrote down and I thought about. about. Do you back talk? It could be as simple as to your parents, to your boss, to your authority, to your teachers, to anyone. Do you back talk or no? Or do you submit to them, listen, and obey? Here's another example. Are you impatient or are you patient? Was Moses patient? Oh, absolutely. He was leading millions of people. And he was patient with all of them. One time he was impatient. Are you patient or are you impatient? That's a good gauge. That's a good way to test to see if you're meek or not. Here's another question. Do you respect authority or, you, or do you disrespect authority? As much as we may not like some of those who are in authority, do you respect them for being authority? As Scripture says, submit to those who are in authority. Also, if you are not able to submit to authority, what makes you think you could submit to God, who is the supreme, sovereign authority? If you're not able to submit to Him, you can't submit to anyone. If you say God doesn't exist, uh, therefore I don't need to submit to Him, you won't submit to anyone around you, and neither will anyone submit to you. I had an argument with my four-year-old. I was disciplining him, and he said, Papa, you need to say sorry to me first before I say sorry to you. I said, no. I'm your dad, and you're my son. Therefore, you need to say sorry first because you disobeyed me. It was a two-hour process until he finally broke and said, Papa, I'm sorry. Two hours. You know, sometimes it's the same thing with us and, and God the Father, right? We think that we are an authority. We think that we have to have it our way. But he says, no, I'm the one in charge. God is absolutely sovereign. So, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Right, let's keep going. From there. Oh, here's another one. Attentive to people around you or only on themselves. I think that's a wonderful illustration. Do you pay attention to people that are around you? Do you talk to them? Do you notice them? Do you say hi to them? Or do you just flat out ignore them? I think a person who flat out ignores people around them is a very prideful person who thinks of only themselves. They don't see the needs around. They don't notice people around. And they think of only themselves. So, these are a few good questions to think about. Think about it. Maybe you have some 
better illustrations or better examples of what it means to be meek. This is what I came up with. This is what I thought of. So ask yourself next time you're being in class or you're being taught a lesson or something. If you mess up, how do you respond? If someone corrects you, how do you respond? If someone critiques you, how do you respond? Are you meek about it or no? Hunger and thirst for righteousness. I know we spoke about this one earlier. Let's keep going. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Do you know what that speaks about? Or I believe it's actually chapter 4, verse 20. My apologies. Chapter 4, verse 20. It says these words. No, let's go 520. Ah, oh, yeah. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Does that bother anyone, that, that verse? I used to read it, and I used to think, what does that mean? If my righteousness doesn't surpass theirs, I can't enter the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? What does that mean? You know, sometimes you pray, and you read, and you ponder, and you think. The Lord opened it up to my heart to my understanding and it's this your righteousness your works could never surpass or earn you salvation that's what the pharisees did my works my knowledge my everything i did they always prayed in the streets fasted in public gave this gave to the poor publicly they did everything they were the most righteous people right but christ said unless your righteousness surpasses theirs you'll never enter People thought, whoa, how could that be? But your righteousness doesn't come from what you do. Your righteousness comes from Christ. Christ is our righteousness. So if you believe in Christ, you are clothed with righteousness. You're therefore surpassed the righteousness of the Pharisees. I hope that makes sense to you. Because you yourself can't become a righteous person on your own. So what is righteousness? Is it something that you can do on your own or something that you earn? It's something that's given to you. How? The book of Romans speaks about it. Our righteousness comes only through Jesus Christ by believing in Him. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So the righteous shall live by faith. Our righteousness can never come from me, myself, or from you, yourself. Because you can never make yourself right with God on your own. You're born with a sinful heart. That's the way it is. We're born in life and sin. We have a sinful nature. Look at a two-year-old. Do you ever have to teach them how to steal? No. They already know how to do it. Do you ever have to teach a child to say bad words or speak lies? No. They start naturally doing it on their own. It's it's in their heart at a young age. That's why we have this sinful nature book. But you see, God knows that. And it was passed down to us all the way from Adam. That's why sin entered into the world. But Christ made a way. If you believe in Christ... If you put your faith into him, it is credited to you as righteousness. You're now saved through Christ. Not your works, but through Christ. 
soul. If you are hunger, hungry and thirsting for righteousness, what are you actually hunger and thirst for? For Christ. You are hungry and you are thirsty for Christ. Do you recall the passage when Christ, at the last day of the feast, stood up before the people and said, All who are thirsty. What did He say next? Come to Me and I will give you waters, living waters, that will flow out of your bellies. Will flow out of you. Rivers of water will be flowing out of you. Church, is that us, our own righteousness, or is that the righteousness of Christ? You see, he was speaking about his Holy Spirit, but a person can never receive the Holy Spirit of God if they're not made right with God in the first place. They first must come to Christ, repent. Then they're made righteous in the sight of God through Christ because you believe in Him. Scripture says whoever confesses the name of Christ, believes with their heart, professes Him as Lord and Savior, shall be saved. Saved. It's not our own righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ. When Satan tempted Christ, he said, make these stones bread. And what did Christ respond to him? Man shall not live on bread alone, but on the every word of God. That's hunger and thirst for righteousness for God. If you don't hunger for Christ, if you're not hungry for Him, you're not hungry for righteousness. You're not thirsty for righteousness if you don't seek Christ. So, question for you. How do you know you're hungry and thirsty for righteousness if you're seeking Christ? If you're seeking Christ daily, then you are hungry and thirsty. If not, you're not. So ask yourself a question. Am I really hungry and thirsty or no? If Christ stood here and said, come to me all who are thirsty and I'll give you living water, would you come to him? He still speaks right here in his word and he still says, come to me. Come. Merciful. Blessed are the merciful for they shall be shown Mercy. What is the difference between mercy and grace? It's not a trick question. But I, I have an illustration. I don't think I've heard it anywhere. I just really like the illustration. If you've heard it, I give the person credit. But this is the way I like to explain mercy. God sits on his throne. He's the king. He's almighty God. And he holds the scepter in his hand. He has absolutely all sovereignty, and nothing can happen unless he gives permission. Satan cannot come up to you unless God gives him permission. The book of Job is clear on this. So God the Father sits there. Christ sits at his right hand, the King of Kings. Stop goofing off over there. You're disrespectful. He's sitting on the right side of God the Father, and you have a multitude of people in front of him who are supposed to die because they're wrong. But God gives a scepter and he extends life to that person. That's the act of mercy. He just showed mercy towards that person and gave them life. So now that person comes forward. They are now allowed to live because the king said 
live. And then he says, not only is he allowed to live, clothe him with white clothes. Take him and put him here on my side, to the right side of me. And he will now live with me and give him the best of clothes and crown him and give him gifts. That is grace. We don't deserve mercy, nor do we deserve grace. But it's now gifted to us. This is the illustration I like to use. And I think it puts mercy and grace very well together because they are different. We're saved according to the mercy and grace of Christ. And Scripture says in the book of Titus, He didn't save us according to our own righteousness and our own good works, but He saved us according to His great mercy and His great grace. So here's a question. Why does God desire mercy? There's a verse. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I want to read this quote to you out loud. There's a fad going around. I know Scripture says... Love mercy, seek justice, right? Walk humbly before your God in the minor prophets. But here's this phrase. If mercy is necessary part of justice, then mercy is something we are owed. If we are owed mercy, then it is not mercy at all. In the most basic sense, justice is receiving what we are owed. Conversely, mercy is receiving good when we are not owed it. This distinction is not only important to preserve the meaning of the two terms, but it is also important for our understanding of the gospel. I think that pastor from that church nailed it. Because you need to understand that mercy is not something we're owed. You know, a lot of people these days think they're so entitled. Oh, you like social justice? Do you think you really deserve free stuff? Free health care? Do you think you deserve free money? Do you think you deserve absolutely anything? No, you don't. You don't deserve anything from your parents. That's the hard truth. You don't. Your parents... I'm a parent. I want to bless my children. I want to love them. I want to give them things. And if I don't, God will question me. But there's a lot of people who walk out. You're not owed anything. That's bottom truth. And God doesn't owe you salvation either. That's another hard truth. God doesn't owe you absolutely anything. Did you know that? God doesn't owe me anything. You know what I owe? I owe to die. I owe to go to hell because I'm a sinful human being. But God, in his loving kindness, extended mercy, extended grace. So if you think I am someone special, sorry, news flash, there's 7 billion people out there. What makes you think that you're better than someone else? And what makes you think that you are owed something because you're better than someone? If you think you're hot, you're not. If you think you are the glamorous person of all, in fact, you're probably not. And if you think you're the smartest person of all, sorry, newsflash, you're probably not. Who do you think you are? 
You know, Job one time stood before God and said, if only I could plead my case before you. And then God spoke to Job. Job, righteous Job. And God spoke to him and he said, who here speaks with words without knowledge and who darkens my counsel? That was righteous Job. Job who was known to be someone who doesn't sin. And yet when he spoke, he darkened the counsel of God. So, okay, here's another example of mercy. Another question. Social justice, we're not going to get into that. Mercy is not owed. Remember that. Here's another question. Does God have to show mercy? Yes or no? This is a good question. Yes or no? What are some examples from the Bible? Are there examples? Should we then be merciful towards all, or should we be merciful partially? Show favoritism. I want to say one thing. The examples that God has given us in his word, the Israelites were thrust out of his sight because they continued in their sin and continued in their sin and continued in their sin until it reached a point and God said, that's enough. You're out of my sight. You're out. And he thrust them aside. Apostle Paul speaks about in Romans between chapters 13 and 15, somewhere in there on this side of my Bible. He says, therefore, be careful. Take that as an example. I'm paraphrasing. If God did that to the Israelites and grafted you, don't think you are better than they are. God is able to do the same thing to you. But here's the difference between God and us. We were showed mercy and great mercy. And we understood why we're showed mercy by God. Therefore, we have to be merciful towards people. Why? Because we've been forgiven. So therefore, we need to forgive others. Christ showed us mercy. And we, the people who understand what mercy means, need to show mercy. We are not in the seat of God who can decide who to show mercy and who not to show mercy. That's God's job. Leave it to him. He can take care of it. And we won't go into that topic any further. But we, if we understand what it means when God showed us his mercy and saved us by his own grace and mercy, we then are able to be gracious towards those around us. We're able to be merciful towards those around us. Not giving free stuff to people just because they're people, just because they want it, just because they think they're entitled. No. Because we want to. Because that's what Christ has showed us. All right. So, I hope you remember that. Show mercy. So, those who show mercy, the blessed and merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Pure in heart. We're going to go through this and click. Clean, holy. Does not devise evil plans. In the Old Testament, we read through the minor and major prophets that God says, I hate it when you devise evil plans against your neighbor. You have evil intentions towards your neighbor. That's not a pure heart. That's not, that's not a clean condition. 
does not have evil intentions towards neighbor. Uh, t- an example of clear water and tainted murky water. What do you want to drink? Clean water or dirty water? Do you want to swim in, swim in clean water or dirty water? Shower, bath, whatever. You want it to be in clean water, not dirty. So Christ is saying, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Not the ones who have evil intentions, the ones who continue on sinning, but the ones who ask for forgiveness, repent, see Christ, and follow him. Don't think anything evil towards their neighbors. So the next question, what are your motives? In whatever you do, what are your motives? Are they pure? Are they sincere? Or are they rotten? Are they self-centered? Are, are your motives only about yourself? Or are your motives to share? To do good? What are your motives? If you know what your motives are, you're able to start saying, is my heart pure? Are my motives, my actions, are they pure before God? And the God's word reminds us and it shows us. It's like a mirror. It shows us who we are. Pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Jonah was a peacemaker. He went to Nineveh. Didn't want to, but he did. God was going to send his wrath on Nineveh. Jonah preached to them. They repented. God spared the city. Was Jonah a peacemaker? Yeah, he was. Yes, he was. And Christ spoke about Jonah and confirmed the life of Jonah. All right, let's move on. Prophets, ministers, Christians. A true Christian is always going to be a peacemaker between the brothers. There's examples of it, but we're going to keep going further. Jesus Christ is the ultimate peacemaker between God and man. Amen? If it wasn't for Christ, there would be no peace. That's why he's called the Prince of Peace. He came to give peace. He came to reconcile God to mankind. He was the one who fulfilled this ministry. No other person could. Only Christ was able, and Christ did it. He's the ultimate peacemaker. All right, let's move on from peacemakers. Blessed are those when you, blessed are you when you are reviled, persecuted, and uttered all kinds of evil against you for my account. I want to read that, Matthew chapter 5. It says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. I highlighted my account because Christ is saying on my account. Do you understand that Christ just claimed himself to be who? What did Christ just claim when he said my account? He just started his ministry. He's preaching to the people. He said, blessed are you when people persecute you on my account. He claimed to be God. Here's another claim that he says that he's God. That's it. Either you believe it or you don't. Why else would he say that? Is, does he have some sort of basis and ground for having the ability to say that? Absolutely. Absolutely he does. So then the claims of Jesus Christ started with his first 
speech when he began in chapter 5. He sat down, he began to speak, and he opened his mouth. The words of truth came out. It didn't return empty. It went out, accomplished that. What was his purpose? Well, he purposed it according to Isaiah, and it didn't return empty. It still sounds forth. And Matthew chapter 7 at the very end, verse 28 says, And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as the one who had authority and not as their scribes. Christ has the authority. He is God. And when he spoke his words, they still go out. So a question for you. Are you listening to the words of Christ or no? Are you paying attention to what his word teaches or no? When we look at all these beatitudes, each and every single one of them, they all point towards the cross of Jesus Christ. They all point towards Christ. You think, oh, I'll be humble. I'll have a rich mansion. I'll inherit the earth. That's not true. Look at Abraham. He wandered and wandered the earth. Did he inherit it? No. But he inherited it up there. What about all the other prophets? What about all the other ones who spoke of Christ, who taught of Christ? And Christ said, blessed are you if you're persecuted, for in the same way they treated the prophets who were before you. Christ has all the authority. So my question to you is this. Do you listen to Christ? Do you know Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you met him? Are you being taught by him? If you're mature in Christ and you're growing, are you being allowed or are you allowing the Holy Spirit to teach you and speak to you and change you? All this leads up to Christ. And the more we grow in Christ, the more we give heed to him, the more he changes us, and then we're able to do all these. We're able to mourn for sin. We're able to be peacemakers. We're able to be meek. We're able to be poor in spirit. We're able to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Without Christ, you can't do those things. But if you have Christ, he is able to do these through you and in you. And he is able to change your heart for that. If you don't know Christ, accept him. If you've never paid attention to who he is, he is who he is. He, what he claimed is true and his claims are real. Do you know him? Do you serve him? Do you love him? Do you follow him? Think of these questions. Let's stand up for prayer.